Let me pray again, and we'll jump into the Word. Father, we humble ourselves before You, acknowledging that You're God and that we are deficient, and that, Lord, You've committed to use Your Word by the power of Your Spirit to speak truth to us in such a way that we grasp it, lay hold of it, see You more fully, see our own situation more fully. And uh, Father, would You be at work this morning to show us the, uh, the absolute... Uh, unadulterated uh, perfection of your son's glory and of his love and of his person and his character such that we are liberated ourselves uh, out of the inadequate views of ourselves or you or Jesus, out of inadequate ways of trying to cope and live with life. Help us to see your son high and lifted up in his name. Amen. Thursday nights are fairly busy at our house. Kathy's had a study for gals going on for a number of years, and we've had a Bible survey class that started in January. And uh, it is, it's been life-changing, uh, I think. That'd be fair to say for several who've been in it. Uh, I've gone through the Bible many times, you know, read through the Bible in a year, and, and there's always something new. Nobody ever exhausts the Bible for sure. Uh, but this study, uh, just having some questions each week that we're trying to answer, marking up our Bible, same Bible study, put our notes in there, and then getting together for about an hour and a half on Thursday nights, it's, it has been radical in how much uh, more God's Word has come open and alive. And I think that'd be true of the folks that are in it. In fact, that's some of the testimonies, some of the words from their mouth from last week. We were talking last week, one, one element that came up as we've been reading through the Samuels and the Kings, you see the lives of all these different people, was sort of this remarkable quality of God's Word in that God is so objective about the people He treats in the Bible. So if you read secular history, you know, you know if it's ancient uh, Persian or Egyptian or whatever, <clears throat> those kings had a vested interest in what was recorded about them. They wanted to appear great in the annals that would talk about them after they were gone. And so we know that you've got to take that all with the salt of uh, some grains of salt, what they've said about themselves. They're always the best, they're always winning, they're always the conqueror. Well, we know from other sources that's just not so. You get to the pages of the Bible, and God shows the warts on His heroes, doesn't He? On the people that we hold up as heroes in the Bible. God shows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you know, it's interesting in a way... Uh, we tend to maybe uh, deify our, our version of heroes in the biblical record, and, and God never does that. Uh, or we tend to look at the worst in the Bible, and we paint them as entirely black. And it's interesting, God doesn't do that either. So when God talks about the people in His narrative of redemption, it's really as they are. And we have a tendency to magnify ourselves and to magnify our heroes, biblical heroes as well, in a way that just doesn't comport with reality. And then we also have a tendency to look at the people that we sort of uh, paint entirely black, say there's no good in them, people that God says He grants repentance to, for instance, the most wicked of kings. So God's really objective in his narrative, in his book, in this story of redemption, ways that we typically are not. You know, if I'm reading the story of David, I'm David. I'm not Goliath. 
I'm not the, the brothers back on the line. I'm not the fearful Israelites who are afraid to do anything. I'm David, and I'll bet you are too. You know, and if I read about Manasseh and Ahab, I'm so glad they're there. I'm so glad they're there. Because, you know, if I read about Ahab and Manasseh, I look pretty good next to those guys, and I'll bet you do too. I've married only one woman. I haven't multiplied wives and concubines. Probably wouldn't be alive, wouldn't be standing here today if I had, I'm sure, for more than one reason. Uh, I have not sacrificed my children, you know, on altars. I haven't bowed to Baal. I haven't, you know, bowed down to statues and idols. So I read those stories and I think, I'm glad they're there because I feel so much better about myself. You know, thank you, Lord, for the Ahabs and the Manassehs. The trouble is, in the big picture, that we tend to overstate our strengths and the strengths of those in the biblical record, and we tend to understate our sins and the sins of those we make heroes in the Bible. And the truth is this, the heroes in the Bible are not that heroic. They've all got feet of clay. And we are not the hero of God's story. And David's not the hero of God's story. And Abraham's not the hero. And all the good kings you think of, none of those are the hero of God's story. There's one hero in God's story. And it's God in the Old Testament, sometimes called Yahweh. And it's God manifest in the flesh, Jesus, in the New Testament. So there's one hero in the narrative. And all those little guys along the way, they're not it. God's always meaning us to see God behind the good, the bad, and the ugly in the story of redemption. I want to develop this thought a little bit. Our propensities based on our sinfulness. And then we'll apply that towards the end of Jesus' last days and last hours on His life on the earth. The heroes in the story, God's story, are not that heroic. So, you know, King David shines in the Old Testament, doesn't he? And for good reason. I mean, great, great things, great elements in his life. And he is the gold standard by which every king that follows him is measured. And so we might read David and we sort of idolize David. We put him up on a pedestal. But you know, you read David in context. You read all of David's story and he doesn't look so good. He smells a little. He's a little stinky. So you know, all of us are thinking right about uh, Bathsheba. This This was terrible. He's got all kinds of wives. You know, when Nathan the prophet talks to him, it's like you took a lamb from a guy who's got one lamb. You've got a flock. What are you thinking? And then worse, Uriah is this sterling guy, feet of clay like all of us, but in the, in the portrait of him in the story, he's sterling. He's this great guy. And David not only takes his wife, but he murders him. That's David. That's King David. Or later in his life, out of pride and out of his own glory and sense of that, he has a census taken of the nation of Israel and God judges him by killing thousands of the people David was supposed to be a shepherd for. David is a hero, sort of, but he's sort of a bad guy too. He's got feet of clay. If you look in uh, Hebrews 11, which is a crazy chapter, we go there to look at the guys, the heroes of faith, right? These are the examples. These are the pillars. These are the guys who did it right. You know, you read through the list towards the end of Hebrews 11, you read about a guy named Jephthah. And if you've read Jephthah and Judges, you're thinking, Lord, is there a mistake? Why is Jephthah in Hebrews 11? So I just read Hebrews 11. That's all I know. Jephthah, a man of faith, go Jephthah. You know, I read about Jephthah and Judges. It's a little different, right? 
So on one hand, he's a great guy, and he goes out and he, he marshals the troops and he defeats Israel's enemies. And then what does he do? Do you guys remember when he comes home? You know, I had a uh, discussion with my, one of my daughters about this just a week ago. Dad, what do you think he really did? I say, well, I'm stuck with the text. What does the text say? Not what do you want it to say, not what do you hope it says, you know. It appears that he went home and he offered his daughter as a burnt sacrifice to Yahweh. This is Jephthah in Hebrews 11, the man of faith. You read 2 Peter and it talks about Lot, Abraham's nephew. Now if all you know about Lot is 2 Peter, God says of, Pete, or God says of Lot, Lot was a righteous man. Great, go Lot, right? 2 Peter, he's righteous. You know, read his story in Genesis and what do you see? So there's Lot in the city of Sodom and the two angels come in and they're, they're warning you know, the righteous in the city get out. The city's going to be destroyed. And what does Lot do when the mob comes against his house because they want to rape the two angelic men who are in that house? What does Lot do? He offers his two daughters to them instead. And you're thinking, Lot is righteous. Wow. You know, I'm not feeling it. But God says He's righteous on one hand, but we look at His life and we say, wow, how far short of glory. And of course, those two daughters that the angels spare uh, get daddy drunk later. He has sex with his daughters and that's the Ammonites and the Moabites. Lot, we don't read Lot in context and say Lot is a hero, though God says on another hand, he's a righteous man. Our heroes, at the end of the day, they have sins, they have faults, just like us. It will not do to prop them up on these pedestals and say too much of them or think too highly of them. The other thing is, we're not ultimately the hero of God's stories. David's not, Abraham isn't. That role is reserved for God. And then we say, of course, when we get to the New Testament, God in flesh, Jesus. Ultimately, God is putting a spotlight on His Son, on Jesus. So, if you get to the New Testament and the Gospels, you see Jesus interacting directly. If you see Jesus in the Old Testament, it's usually as Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. But you think about so many of those stories in which we think of a particular person associated as the hero of the story, and you say, well, actually not. The hero behind the hero was God always. So if you go to Joshua 6 and say, who was it that brought down the walls of Jericho? You know, all the Jews did was they marched around the city. One time, six days, seven times, seventh day, blow the trumpet and yell. Do we think the trumpets or the voices, do we think they brought down those walls? No. God brought down the walls. That was God with Joshua. Who is it that defeats the giants with slingshots? Thinking of David. Or the enemy armies with songs, thinking of Jehoshaphat. You know, what army sends out the worship team? That's an idea, actually. <laughs> Mark, are you, can we sign you up? We send our worship team out in front of the army. That's Jehoshaphat's story. And, and the enemy is wiped out. Who did that? It, it wasn't the worshipers. It wasn't Jehoshaphat. It wasn't the army. It was God again. God was the hero of the story. Who is it that covers David's sins and gives him a posterity in spite of his sins? That's Yahweh, the God of Israel also. You know, you get to the New Testament and we know that Jesus is God, don't we? Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And God puts on flesh, takes His walk among us, comes into our life, space and time. He's one of us. 
And then we see this same thing going on again. So who multiplies food for the hungry crowds in John chapter 6? Just like Moses had, just like Elisha does, that's Jesus again, isn't it? Jesus is the hero that feeds God's people, God's flock. Or who is it? <clears throat> One of the images I love in the Gospels is in Luke 7. And the picture is Jesus, the Lord of life, comes to the gate of the city, and at the gate of the city, there's a funeral procession. And the guy in the coffin, he's the only son of a widowed woman. It's, it's, a, it's a graphic image. And who is it that meets death at the gates of the city and raises that widow's only son back to life? That's Jesus again, the hero of the story. Who is it that gives sight to the blind, health to the lame, and ultimately liberty to the captives? That would be Jesus again. That's not you and that's not me and that's not the apostles either. That's Jesus. That's God Himself. This is Palm Sunday. And you know on past Palm Sundays, we would read the Palm Sunday text. We'd have the Hosanna songs. We'd have the palm branches. And we'd be singing Hosanna to the Son of David. And we'll look at that here in, in just a minute. We're not doing that today. And that would be fine if we did. But what I want to do is develop the thought of um, our propensities to see ourselves and the biblical heroes in a light that God does not want us to. And instead see God's ultimate, really an only hero as Jesus as displayed in that final week, Passover week, Jesus suffering those final days and hours. Sort of use this as a template behind the story or an overlay over Jesus' story there in the very end of His life about our tendency to make too much of ourselves and too little at the end of the day of God Himself and Jesus. <clears throat> There's an old adage that came out of Britain and it went this way, every ass wants to believe he belongs in the queen's stables. You get the picture, you know, you're the little donkey and you're in London and the queen's stables are there and you're this little statured thing and you're looking up at the handsome horses and you're saying, that's what I want. That's me. I'm the little donkey, but I have aspirations to be this beautiful charger, this war horse. You know, the truth is, and in our, our calm, perhaps, perhaps reflective moments, we know it to be true, that we are simply broken. And you know, when Adam and Eve, when they feel the sense of their brokenness in the garden, they put together these fig leaves, don't they? This very inadequate covering, right? To cover up their shame. Their sense of, I'm not who or what I ought to be. Trying to deal with that. Well, all of us have this problem. And so in life, we're usually trying to do something to feel better about ourselves, And so we inflate ourselves. Or we look at people and make heroes of people that we want to be like. Because we feel better if I can aspire nobly, if I can reach up, if I as that little donkey can think someday I'll be that grand horse, I can feel better. That's what I want to associate with. We feel the burden of being donkeys and we want to be that horse. And that changes our perspective. And it changes it in ways usually we're not aware of. Sometimes we're conscious of it, sometimes we aren't. Sometimes we might speak it, sometimes we might not. But it's de facto, it's part of our breakup, our makeup, it's part of our broken status. So this is our tendency. It's not if we tend to do this, we do tend to do this. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. Count on me. I'm your man. You know, I, 
I've got these great characteristics, these great qualities you can count on. But a faithful man who can find. You know, when Solomon says that, many men will boast or will elevate ourselves for our own importance, our own faithfulness. But then Solomon says, but really, if you look for a faithful man, where can you find one? All these guys are talking, thinking, but they're not it. And so it's out of a need to feel better about ourselves that we reinterpret our own life, we reinterpret the lives of others around us. You know, if I think you're less good than me, I can feel better about myself. Or if I can minimize my own sin, or if I can maximize in my own mind my good qualities, I can feel better about myself. And so we bring this grid with us to about everything we do. You know, if there's a school play, everybody wants to be the hero or the heroine, right? But you've got to have a bad guy. You've got to have the expendable extras too, right? But who wants to play that? Why is that? I want to be the hero. I need to be the heroine. If I do, if I see myself in that role, I feel better about myself. I don't want to play the part of the bad guy. I don't want to play the part of the expendable extra. As if I'm expendable. As if I'm less than important. I need to be the hero of my own story. Or if our sin comes into the light of day, something we've done, don't we want to minimize that? I'm not that bad. That's really not me. This came out, by the way, just this week, congressman in Louisiana won his seat on faith and values and is being asked to resign by the Republican Party because of a video that went viral in which he's making out with his best friend's wife. Now, when I say this, I have absolutely no glee. And by the way, I just want to hide myself and say, God, I'm casting no stones here. Because guys, uh, me, a man of sin. That's me. Pride, got that one, lust, you know. It's not just that guy. It's all of us. It's our condition. It's what we bring to bear. But boy, you know, if my sin comes up, I want to minimize it because I don't want you to see me the way I really am. I want you to think better of me than I am so I can feel okay about myself. We're broken, and this leads us to think more highly of ourselves than we are. The awful truth is that we are more like the villains than we are the heroes in the biblical stories. And just hold that thought for just a second. I'm speaking in generalities this morning, primarily, okay? We'll get to the main point at the end. I'm speaking in generalities. So if you say, Mike, I'm not the villain, just, just bear with me for just a little bit. I'm not saying we don't aspire to live nobly. Not saying that. I'm not saying there aren't worthy characteristics to see in the lives of others those characters presented in the biblical record. There are. There's elements of their life that we, we can emulate, absolutely. Elements of God's blessing in their life that we can emulate for sure. I am saying this. Every human hero, every positive character in the pages of the Bible may be golden in their own limited ways, but they have feet of clay in the end and they need a real hero and a real Savior too. Our heroes in the biblical record are sinners in need of a Savior. Just like us, just like you, just like me. Isaiah is rightly called the prince of the prophets. This is not in your study notes, by the way. The prince of the prophets, 66 chapters long. It is this remarkable 
prophetic book. And I know it intimidates many people because it's long. And there's lots of stuff about nations and we say, has that happened? Who is that? When is that? I get that. It can be confusing. But you read Isaiah 40-66, through just these remarkable passages about Jesus both as suffering servant and as coming King. Some of my favorite passages in the Bible out of Isaiah. Isaiah is the man, by the way. In his day, Isaiah is the man. When King Hezekiah, who's a good king, He's a great king. When he has a question, he needs help from Yahweh, he goes to Isaiah. Isaiah is the man. So if, you were, if you're looking for a sterling character in Israel in his day, Isaiah is your guy. But then, in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah has this prophetic vision. And he sees God, Yahweh, high and lifted up and His train fills the temple. He sees God in His glory. Now this guy's the best Israel has to offer. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm in trouble. I'm in deep trouble. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And understand, Isaiah is speaking God's Word. He's the guy of purest lips in the nation of Israel on the planet. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And what's Israel? Israel is God's covenant people. If there's a place to find Yahweh on the earth, where is it? It's Israel. If there's a holy man, it's Isaiah. If there's a holy nation, it's Israel. And Isaiah says, we're unholy. We're unholy. But God, You're holy. That's our best effort. You get to Romans 3 as Paul's developing his theology of redemption. He takes pains to make sure we come away with one point. So in chapter 1, he says, if you're a Gentile, you're guilty. You're a sinner before God. You've transgressed God's moral law. Whether you had the covenant or not, you're guilty. And then he says to the Jews, you've got the law, and you're guilty too. And then he concludes in chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they're worthless or corrupt. No one does good. Not even one. Now guys, when he says that, that's every one of your Bible heroes and mine is in Romans 3. No, not one. All have transgressed. If you're looking for a hero in the pages of the Bible short of Jesus, you will not find one. They don't exist. They're just sinners who have been connected to a great God in His redemptive story. And they signed up. David's not the hero. And all those good kings, much as we love elements of their life, they're not the hero. They're sinners saved by grace, just like us. They're not the heroes of God's story. King Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there's not one righteous man on the earth. And this is interesting coming from Solomon, isn't it? You know, Solomon inherits the kingdom from David, right? It's it's at the the height of the nation is under Solomon. Solomon expands the kingdom past the boundaries David had built it to and and there's never been more wealth or wisdom or fame or glory in Israel than under Solomon. And when he starts out, he is just, he is golden, literally, isn't he? He is golden. And he's humble. God shows up one day and says, Solomon, what do you want? Ask me anything, I'll give it to you. And what's Solomon's humble reply? He says, Lord, I don't have the wisdom it takes to lead your people. 
So I'm asking you for wisdom, a wise heart to know how to take care of your people. And God says, wow, great. You know, because you didn't ask something for yourself, I'm going to give you wisdom. There will be none wiser than you on the earth, but I'll also give you what you didn't ask for. And you say, Solomon, man, here's the guy. David's son, golden kingdom, everything, wisdom of the world. How does he end? It's pathetic, isn't it? It's actually, it's, it's discouraging. So he's an idolater at the end of his life. You know, he's worshiping the pagan gods around the nation of Israel. And the, the text is quite clear. His heart is turned away from Yahweh. It's terrible. It's discouraging. I, I'm thinking there, maybe that's him. Maybe he's the guy that stays golden. No, nope, he doesn't make it either. We may aspire nobly, but our feet are firmly stuck in the quicksand and the clay of our own sin and failings. And that's for the best among the biblical stories. We may desire to be a person worthy of emulation, the epitome of heroism, but we find that we fail to measure up to hero status. And friends, this is the deal everyone else will too. You know, when I mention a guy who's fallen publicly, I cringe a little quietly when I do. Because I know I have feet of clay just like that guy. I'm not saying I'm doing the same thing, by the way. Not now, right? But in my heart, I'm just like that guy. So I don't want to invite God's judgment on Mike by pointing out someone else's sins. I'm not talking about throwing stones at anyone else or everyone else. Because we're all in the same boat. So take those, take those thoughts, those generalities were broken. Out of that brokenness, we want to feel better about ourselves. So we tend to magnify our own importance or our own qualities. We tend to minimize our own sin. We tend to latch on to people that are like us enough that we can aspire to them, but who like us end up basically having feet of clay at the end of the day as well. And we want to bring that in to the last days of Jesus' life. So on Palm Sunday... <clears throat> in the gospel records, you got to think if you're one of the disciples, this has got to be Palm Sunday as good as it gets. Because you've been with Jesus for three years and change. You've been back and forth, up and down through the land of Israel. You've probably had some sleepless nights. You've been on the road. It's, it has not been easy, right? And on Palm Sunday, you're walking with Jesus. This is Passover week that's going to commence, isn't it? This is a celebration. And Jews from all over the Roman Empire will be there. And as they're coming down the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, hey, by the way, get a little donkey for me. And so they do. And so here's Jesus, and He gets on that little donkey, and there's crowds coming with Him from Bethany. There's crowds with Jesus. He's on a little donkey. And you know, His disciples, the Pharisees thought they were uneducated, but Jews knew their Old Testament. And what do you think's going through those disciples' minds and hearts when Jesus climbs on that little donkey? And then the crowd starts celebrating Him and yelling out Hosanna, quoting from Psalm 118, Hosanna to the Son of David, Save now, blessed is He who comes in the name of Yahweh. This is the guy. That's what they're saying. And they know Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? If you're one of the disciples, man, you're riding high. Jesus is finally acknowledged, not just in a back corner in Galilee, this is Jerusalem. 
And as he's going into Jerusalem, it's to these cries of Hosanna. Jesus is being recognized as the Messiah. And his disciples are with him. The boys are with him. And they're, they're on cloud nine. This would be as good as it gets. But the, end, the day ends a little odd. And then the week keeps going. And it sort of it seems downhill from there. So Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. He's calling them names. He's calling down the judgments of God on the religious leaders. What's with that? He's talking now about, he's just been received by Jerusalem as the Messiah, but now, read Matthew 24, he's talking about Jerusalem being destroyed. What's with that? And he's talking about coming back. And you've got to remember, though, Jesus had talked to the disciples about being rejected in Jerusalem and crucified and rising the third day. The Gospels are very clear. They don't understand. Jesus has said the words, but it has not sunk in. They don't know what's coming. They don't. So that Sunday, that Palm Sunday, life is great. We've arrived. Jesus is accepted. But now these conversations that follow, they're friction here. And the leaders, they're not liking Jesus. And he's talking about God's judgment and Jerusalem being destroyed. What's with that? You know, they get to Thursday night, Passover. And they have the Passover meal. And do you remember Jesus says, with great desire, I've desired to have this meal with you. I'm so glad to be here with you. And this is sort of a highlight too, isn't it? Because for the Jews, they didn't always celebrate Passover, by the way. But off and on, for about 1,400 years, they've been celebrating Passover. They've been remembering Yahweh's righteous, powerful hand coming down in the angel of death, passing over the Jewish houses where the blood of the Lamb was smeared. The lamb reflected in the Passover lamb they're eating that evening. And Jesus takes that imagery of Yahweh delivering His people. And He says, now in the future when you do this, when you break that bread, remember me, the unleavened bread of the celebration. And in the future when you drink that wine, when you drink from that cup, remember me. And the disciples still don't get it. And besides that, Jesus starts this talk about saying, hey guys, by the way, you guys are going to forsake me tonight. And one of you will betray me. Where did that come from? And they are reeling. The disciples are reeling. They're confused. And I think probably just a little offended about me. So Peter, he speaks up. Probably what they're all thinking though. Lord, not me. You can count on me. Lord, even if everyone else should forsake you, I wouldn't. I couldn't. And I know Peter, he means it. He loves the Lord. We're, we're not diminishing their love for the Lord, right? You know, Thomas was ready to go with Jesus to Jerusalem to be martyred, he thought, earlier in John's Gospel. So we're not diminishing that. But it's the feet of clay that come in, isn't it? So Peter says, Lord, can you imagine this too? An omnipotent God who cannot lie. Lord, you're wrong. No. But Peter thinks Jesus is wrong. Lord, you're wrong. I'm with you. Count on me. And Matthew's Gospel says, and they all said the same thing. Jesus says, you're going to be struck. You're going to forsake me tonight. And one of you is going to betray me. No way, no way, no way. So the supper's over and the night's worn on. It's a little late. They go down the eastern hill of Jerusalem, Kidron Valley, up the hill, the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Jesus knows what's coming even though they don't. So Jesus says, guys, I want to pray. And I want you praying with me too. But you guys stay here and I'll go a little away 
and we're both going to pray, and, and you pray, and Jesus, this is his greatest moment of need, isn't it? And just guys, just stick with me for an hour here and we'll pray, right? And so Jesus comes back to check on the boys and, and they're asleep. You know, the guys he can count on, the guys that'll be there for him, the guys that truly love him, they're asleep, not once. Some of you guys are having trouble right now, okay? I'm just saying. <laughs> stick with me. <laughs> Why <Wind> down. <laughs> It was a late night. We, we celebrated last night, didn't we? <laughs> it was a great wedding yesterday. But I had to say something. Um, where were we? In the garden. Yeah, asleep. Not once, not twice. Three times. Jesus is sweating blood. They're sawing logs. You know, and then Judas leads the temple and the Roman guards to the garden. And there's a scuffle. There's a brief scuffle. But what do all the guys do after the brief scuffle? They all do exactly what Jesus said. They flee. They run away. They're saving their backside. They're getting out of trouble. And they flee. And if you look at Peter in that brief scuffle, you, you know he's an emotional guy. And in the heat of the moment, he's got a sword. Now, there's no thought that he can save Jesus against these armed soldiers and guards. There's no thought. He doesn't care in that moment, does he? In the heat of the moment, he pulls the sword. He cuts off, you know, the guy's ear. You know, Jesus says, I don't need that kind of help. Heals the guy's ear. But in the heat of the moment, Peter's good. Cuts off the ear. But what happens later? So the soldiers, the guards take Jesus away. Now, Peter finds Jesus, doesn't he, in the courtyard of the high priest and john's already in there and john gets pete in but you know the night's grown colder peter's courage has grown colder it's not the heat of the moment and so there he is in the courtyard and a gal comes up a gal just a woman and says aren't you one of his disciples there's no sword drawn it's just uh, no that that wouldn't be me you know it's servants and women it's people that in any other time or place, Peter probably wouldn't have any problem saying, yeah, I belong to Jesus, but not now. So now he denies he knows Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. He cusses the last time to add emphasis. No way, no, no how, that's not me. You know, the heat of the moment's gone. The cold night has settled in and Pete cannot live up to his claim. He can't do it. Can't do it. When we say this, we're not casting stones at Peter and the disciples, for sure. They, Jesus knew. And you know, you think for a moment, Jesus goes to the Jewish leaders and they've got an axe to grind with him, right? Because Jesus is a threat to their political and spiritual power and to their pocketbook. And so they condemn him. They want to get rid of him. They've wanted to almost since his beginning. So we don't think he's going to get a fair hearing in that court, but he goes to Pilate. They take him to Pilate. They want to crucify him. They can't do it. Only the Romans can crucify, can execute. Now, we've got a chance of justice with Pilate, right? He's got no dog in this fight. He is Roman justice in Jerusalem and Palestine. What's he got to lose? He can administer justice. But what happens with Pilate? You know, first he says, like, there's nothing wrong with this guy. 
They're like, no, 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 you got to crucify him. Pilate's like, what? You know, I've listened to him. I've listened to your accusations. There's nothing to do with this guy. But, but then Pilate, now just re- remember, this guy has the power of the Roman legions behind him. There's nobody who can take him down if he doesn't want to go down, okay? He's got all the military might in that corner of the world. He owns it. He runs it. You know what Pilate does? He quails before the Jewish threat. And the threat is something like this. If you don't do what we say, we're going to go tell on you. That's the way we'd say it as kids. I'm going to tell mom on you. I'm going to tell dad on you. Because what's the threat? They say... This guy says he's a king. If you don't execute him, you're no friend of Caesar's, and Caesar's going to hear about that from us. And so Pilate washes his hands. He says, I'm innocent of this man's, this innocent man's blood. He's not, is he? He's not. Couldn't execute Jesus without Pilate's complicity. He's not innocent. And the place you'd think he can get justice, there's no justice. Pilate and Roman justice fail as well. And then last, there's the crowds. You know, if, if there's any story in the Bible that should tell you, don't care if other people think well of you or not. Aside from politics, this story. So on Sunday, who is Jesus to the crowds in Jerusalem? He's our guy. He's the king. Hosanna to the son of David. What is he on Friday? He's nobody. He's a guy we just want to get rid of him. And in the worst way possible, would you please crucify this guy? Pilate, are you sure about this? Let me... Let me, let me release him for you. No, 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 we don't want him. You know, give us the murderer. You put this guy to death. Well, hold on, you know, he's an innocent man. Let his blood be upon us and our children. Really? It's the same crowd. This is the Passover celebration week crowd. They're all there. They may not all be the same, but they're pretty much the same. Pilate and the Romans... And the disciples and the Jews, this is the thing at the end of the day, they are us. They are you and they are me. They represent all of us. You know, Psalm 2, the disciples quote in Acts when they say, Lord, it's just like you said that both the Jewish people and the Romans, the Jews and the Gentiles conspired to put your son to death, just like you said it would be. In other words, we're all guilty. None of us come out of this. So if you identify with the apostles, you have feet of clay. If you identify with Roman justice, secular, the secular ability to look at things cold, black and white, you don't fare well there either. You see where that leaves us, we're all guilty. They represent all of us. Jesus in this story of redemption is the only hero. So, I'm winding down here. When Jesus goes to the cross, He goes alone. We know physically there's a thief on each side of Him, right? We know that. We know that there are actually women at the foot of the cross too, don't we? But guys, in the most profound, deepest ways possible, Jesus on the cross is Christ alone. Absolutely. So He's been forsaken by His friends. He's been betrayed by His friends. The Jewish hierarchy has rejected Him. The Roman hierarchy has rejected Him. That would be bad enough. Uh, It's a pretty lonely spot being hung on a cross, isn't it? You're being accused. You're being executed as the worst of the worst on the planet. That would be bad enough. That would be Christ alone on the cross. But it gets worse, doesn't it? 
we often talk about mystery related to theology and we say, well, it's a mystery. And sometimes we use that in a way that's actually not true. But this is a mystery. Within the Godhead, Bill was talking in Sunday school today about the Trinity. The Trinity from eternity past, and there's no past to the Trinity. There's the eternal now, if you will. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always perfectly, complementarily blessed and been blessed by each other. Jesus has never known a moment in His life or an eternity in which He's not in constant, deep, personal, rewarding, abiding fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. But you get to the cross and what happened? Matthew 27, about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22, a messianic psalm about Messiah's rejection. Jesus is on the cross, Christ alone, not only from all of humanity's perspective, but from his father's as well. Because God is now treating Jesus as you, And as me, Jesus is the guilty party, not for his own guilt, but for our guilt, the guilty party God is treating as sin and a sinner. And so the Father has cut him off. And this is the the startling thing. When Christ alone hangs on the cross and the Father, in essence, turns his back on him, cuts off fellowship, punishes him for our sin, which is all judgment on one hand, Guys, the key reason God does that on the other hand is so that uniquely in all the annals of all history, God's spotlight from heaven is on Jesus, on Christ, alone on the cross. The Father could think of no greater, more lasting, more substantial way to honor His Son than to make Him the hero of all times and all places and all people. And he does that by putting Christ alone on the cross. Christ hung between heaven and earth. God shining the spotlight on Jesus even as He is treating Jesus for our sins. Christ alone was God's means of raising Jesus up into greater glory as well as saving you and me. Taking care of our feet of clay. It's in his singular moment of aloneness when the Father was punishing Jesus for our sin, the Father was also showing the world its one true, lasting, real hero. It's in Christ and Christ alone that we have any hope of forgiveness and true significance and liberty and life. In Christ alone, we're we're saying we're saved in Christ alone, but it's Christ alone on the cross that's the means by which we can enjoy salvation. This church's statement of belief says salvation is by God's grace through faith. God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's Christ alone that saves us. It's Christ alone that's the solution to our isolation. You know, we all of us were made for fellowship. We're made to know others and to be known. And yet many of us will struggle in our lifetime with deep, deep sense of loneliness and of isolation. And I love the fact that you will never experience isolation or loneliness deeper or more profound than Jesus did on the cross. And if you want someone who's empathetic and sympathetic, a friend who can come alongside you when you're in your deepest, darkest moment of despair, Jesus has been deeper 
and darker than you've been. And He can be that friend closer than a brother to you in your moments of deepest, darkest despair and loneliness. Christ alone means you have someone that can empathize with you. Christ alone is the answer to our deepest need for love and acceptance. Christ alone is the means by which our sins can be fully and adequately put away. Christ alone is the means of our restoration. Isn't that great? That in Jesus' singular aloneness, that's the solution to our loneliness and then we are brought into God's family through faith in Christ. This is the thing at the end of the day. If we see that Christ alone is really the only hero in the story, God is right. If we understand Jesus is the only potential, real life, full-blown, no feet of clay hero, and that in Christ alone we're forgiven, loved, valued, restored to real unfeigned significance and purpose and place, then our search for significance is over. Then all the mechanisms by which we try to feel better about ourselves, they're all done away with. Then my need to make you lower so I can feel higher is gone. Then my need to, to elevate myself in pride is gone. If I get that Jesus is the only hero and He's the hero that has saved me, I'm free to join Him at His side in faith, accept who He's made me, His call on my life, my place in this world. I can accept all of that because I'm at the real hero's side, loved by Him, accepted by Him, forgiven in Him. Christ alone is the solution to our aloneness entirely. In a group this big, there's certainly people who do not yet know Christ in that way. What a great day, Palm Sunday, to with open hands acknowledge I'm not all that I want to be. I aspire to be more than I am. And I recognize that deficiency and simply with open arms I accept, I gladly take the forgiveness, the salvation, the deliverance freely offered me in Christ. What a great day to do that. If you've already done that, and I know most of you have, what, what a great memory, what a great point of theology. Christ alone is the end of all my searching for significance in life. I've already got it. And so out of that significance, I am free to be the person God's made me to be and to declare His excellencies. I have nothing to lose. I have everything to gain because of Christ alone. Father, we thank You so much for from eternity past coming up with a plan for our deliverance and salvation. Lord Jesus, thanks that You were the willing agent, the One who took on our humanity, died on a cross for our sins, though You had done nothing wrong, that You alone bore our burdens, Lord, so that we could be the righteousness of God in You. And Father, would You glorify Yourself here this morning by helping us to see Jesus, by declaring His excellencies, Lord, by bringing others into your family through faith. In Jesus, amen.